Hey everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of the History of Ancient Greece with Ryan Stitt. I'm MC Williams, host of the delightfully naughty Mystery Teacher Hated podcast, a not-safe-for-work introduction to mythology from around the world, with all of the sex and violence left in, along with some naughty words for good measure. We're just finishing up a long series on the mythic saga of the Trojan War, which heavily features today's topic. I'm here to introduce you to one of the most important, complex, and contradictory gods of the ancient Greek pantheon, Apollo. He and his twin sister, Artemis, were children of Zeus and Leto in one of his many, many dalliances. Apollo is the patron god of a weirdly diverse set of things, including music, poetry, art, prophecy, archery, plagues, medicine, farming and herding, knowledge, light, and the sun, along with the minor god Helios. He's typically depicted as a beardless teenager with a lyre made by Hermes from a tortoise shell, and he was known for rocking out with the muses at parties. Seriously. He's basically the god of rock and roll. He was also one hell of a storyteller, so hopefully, Apollo will smile on this episode of the History of Ancient Greece. So sit back, relax, and prepare to get some knowledge dropped on you. Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece. Episode 82, The Leader of the Muses. Today's episode is brought to you by our new September Patreon supporter, Rachel Smythe, as well as PayPal donor, Matthew McNaughton. Once again, I do apologize if I didn't pronounce those correctly, but I do thank you for your donations and support of the podcast. If you too would like to support the History of Ancient Greece, you too can become a monthly Patreon supporter or one-time donor at PayPal. Links to the various sites are in the show notes. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. Apollo is one of the most important and complex Olympian deities in Greek religion. He has been variously recognized as a god of music, truth and prophecy, knowledge, healing, the sun and light, medicine and plague, poetry, and much more. Essentially, he is a god of everything that offers to mankind the chance to gain understanding of the nature of the gods through his gifts. Because of this, he is one of the most widely worshipped deities in the Greek world. Apollo is nevertheless a relative latecomer to the pantheon. The Mycenaeans probably did not know him, though their healing god Paeon, who appears in a Linear B tablet from Knossos, survived as one facet of Apollo's complex character. There will be more on Paeon later in the episode. Several non-Greek etymologies have been proposed to be an early form of his name, such as Apollonius, a Hittite god, and Aplu, a hurrying god of the plague, where some scholars believe that it derives from the Dorian Greek word for an annual tribal gathering called Apella, which occurred during the month of Apelleos in northwest Greek calendars. At such gatherings, young men were admitted to membership and received political status as adults, in essentially what were initiation festivals. And so the presiding god is almost always depicted as a beardless youth, a common attribute of Apollo. 
and patronage of youths approaching manhood was one of Apollo's key functions, as we will see. Due to their supposed Doric heritage, the ancients also connected Apollo with the Macedonian word Pella, meaning stone, as stones played an important part in the cult of the god, especially in the oracular shrine of Delphi with the Omphalos. Most people associate the worship of Apollo on the axis of the two great Panhellenic sanctuaries, Delphi and Delos. But Apollo was much more than that. For the Greeks, Apollo was essentially all of the gods in one, and through the centuries, he acquired different functions which could originate from different gods. In archaic Greece, he was the oracular god who interpreted the will of Zeus and gave advice on everything from war and colonization to private dilemmas about marriage and family which we described last episode, and in even older times, he was connected with healing and the plague. By the classical period, he was the god of light and of music, but in popular religion, he had a strong function to keep away evil. Scholars generally believe that there were three components in the early history of Apollo's worship. A Dorian Northwest Greek component, a Cretan Minoan component, and a Syro-Hittite component. These three theories have been proposed for his origin, and they aren't mutually exclusive. The popular consensus, it seems, is that Apollo's worship originated in Asia Minor and then spread all over Greece during the migrations of the Late Bronze Age and Iron Age, where it integrated with numerous local deities, such as Mycenae and Paeon, Laconian Carnos and Hyokinthos, and Boeotian Isthmus and Petus whose attributes all had to do with the bucolic life or the prevention of diseases and their cure. And so this mingling justifies the many features of the god. As a result, there are many myths surrounding the figure of Apollo, reflecting his many spheres of influences, and show that by the classical period, Apollo had become a symbol for the exemplary, well-rounded Greek youth to aspire. His most common attributes in art and poetry were the bow and arrow, the lyre, the sacrificial tripod, representing his prophetic powers, the laurel plant, which was used in expiatory sacrifices and in making the victor's crown at the Pythian Games, and the palm tree, because he had been born under one at Delos. Animal sacrifice to Apollo included wolves, dolphins, swans, cicadas, symbolizing music and song, hawks, ravens, crows, snakes, referencing Apollo's function as the god of prophecy, Mice and griffins, which were mythical eagle-lion hybrids of Near Eastern origin. As we know through numerous myths, Apollo fathered a lot of sons who became local heroes, founders of tribes and colonists. His son Epidaurus became a renowned eponymous hero of Epidaurus. Delphus, whom he had by Thea, the daughter of Castalius, became the eponymous hero of Delphi after he established his oracle there. Chiron was the founder of Chironia and his son Amphissus became the colonist of Amphissa. With Minus's daughter, Akakalis, he fathered three sons, Chidon, Miletos, and Naxos, who founded the Hamanonous cities. With Proclea, the daughter of Laomedon, king of Troy, he fathered Tennis, who became the eponymous hero of the island Tenedos. Tennis fought in the Trojan War and was killed by Achilles, an event that drove Apollo to cause his death later by directing an arrow of Paris at the hero's weak heel. These, of course, are just a few examples, and there are many more, as the Greeks loved to claim a legendary foundation story for almost everything. 
The Athenians even boasted of their descent from Ion, the son of Apollo, an ancestor of the Ionian peoples. As we discussed in episode 53, in Euripides' play Ion, Apollo fathered Ion by Croesa, wife of Zuthos. Croesa left the young boy to die in the wild, but Apollo asked Hermes to save the child and bring him to the oracle at Delphi, where he was raised by the priestess. Because of Apollo's supposed fatherhood of their people, the Athenians thus worshipped Apollo Petrus, or the ancestor. In fact, the possession of domestic cults of Apollo Petrus and Zeus Herkios became one of the criteria for holding office in Athens. Because of their ancient kinship, the Athenians and the Ionians of Asia Minor had similar ritual calendars, and many of their common cults and festivals can be dated to the time before the Ionian migration. One of the shared Ionian Attic festivals was the Thargelia, held at the onset of harvest time around May on the 6th and 7th of the month of Thargelion, the birth dates of Artemis and Apollo, respectively. We discussed the Thargelia in great detail in episode 62. While the festival was taking place, the Athenians also sent sacred ambassadors, called Theoroi, to Delos with sacrificial victims to Apollo and choruses for the musical competitions there. As we discussed in episode 76, the small cyclotic island of Delos was celebrated as the birthplace of Apollo and Artemis, and so it became a religious center for all Ionians. They were said to be born on Mount Kynthos, on the island, and so they both received the epithets Kynthios and Kynthogenes, meaning born of Kynthos. While Artemis was probably the original mistress of the early sanctuary on Delos, Apollo came to dominate it by the time of the Archaic period. He was thus worshipped as Delios, and there was held the Delia Festival, with athletic and music competitions similar to the Pythian Games in Delphi. The Homeric Hymn to Apollo tells how the festival was celebrated with boxing, dancing, and song, and describes the Delian maidens who were famed for their choral songs in honor of the god. The Athenians, who controlled the sanctuary for much of its lifetime, twice purified the tiny island by removing burials, except for those of the heroes, and decreeing that all inhabitants had to leave if they were soon to give birth or die, since both childbirth and death were considered to bring pollution. In addition, an elaborate web of myth and ritual connected Delos with Athens and its hero Theseus. The Athenians believe that Theseus visited Delos after slaying the Cretan Minotaur, and with his companions performed a winding dance called the Crane, which imitated the tortuous paths of the labyrinth. They danced around the famous Caraton, an altar constructed from the horns of goats, Apollo's favored sacrificial animal. Not surprisingly, Apollo, Artemis, and even Leto all possessed temples on the island of Delos. In Apollo's archaic temple stood a famous cult image, the work of the 6th century BC sculptors Tactius and Angelion. About twice life-sized and covered with hammered sheets of gold, the god appeared in the frontal pose of a kuros, holding a bow in his left hand and small images of the three karates, or graces, in his right. Another feature of the Delian cult was the legend that the Hyperboreans, a mythical northern people whom Apollo visited every year, sent annual offerings of sacred things wrapped in wheat sheaths to his shrine. The mysterious offerings themselves seem to have some historical basis, though. 
As we discussed in episode 76, a Mycenaean-era tomb on the island was venerated as the gravesite of two Hyperborean maidens, and in the classical period, these offerings were conveyed by a long trade route until they reached Athens, where they were ceremoniously escorted to Delos. In several poetic pieces, such as Pindar's Odes, Apollo is considered to be the father of Aristeus, Asclepius, and other gods and culture heroes whose mission it was to heal and protect the people from disease and other misfortunes cast upon them. In Thessaly, Apollo abducted a beautiful huntress named Cyrene, who was the daughter of Hypsius, a king of the Lapiths, and carried her off to Libya, where she would become the eponymous foundress of a great city on the fertile coastal plain. From their union of love came about Aristeus. According to Pindar's ninth Pythian Ode, when Aristeus was born, Hermes took him to be raised on nectar and ambrosia and to be made immortal by Gaia. He became a sort of pastoral Apollo, as a rustic culture hero who was a benefactor to the people and who was credited with discovering many useful arts. From his father Apollo, Aristeus learned the arts of healing and botany. From his aunt Artemis, he learned how to hunt animals with the use of nets and traps, and how to prepare the meat and skins. From his uncle Dionysus, he learned the processes of how to produce alcoholic beverages. And from his great aunt Demeter, he learned the skills of agriculture and herding animals. The wood nymphs taught him other useful arts and mysteries, such as how to prepare milk for cream, butter, and cheese how to tame bees and keep them in hives, and how to cultivate olives and process them into olive oil. Aristeus then taught all of these things to humanity. He figured prominently in Boeotia as he was linked to the foundation myths of Thebes by his marriage with Otno, the daughter of its founder Cadmus. Their son was Actaeon, the young man who inherited the family passion for hunting and who was tragically ripped apart by his own hunting dogs at the behest of Artemis, as we discussed in episode 76. Coronis was a lovely maiden from Larissa in Thessaly, the daughter of Phlegius, a king of the Lapiths. Her brother was the infamous Ixion, who we discussed in episode 46. Apollo loved her and successively courted her, which as we will see later, didn't happen very often. Eventually, she became pregnant with his child. Even so, she did not really love Apollo, which is par for the course for him. And so while pregnant, she began to have an affair with a mortal named Iscus. The raven, which was Apollo's special bird, saw her and reported all of her actions back to Apollo. He disbelieved the raven, though, and as a result, he turned all ravens black, where they were previously white, as a punishment for what he thought was spreading untruths. When he finally believed the truth, though, he sent his sister Artemis to kill Coronis for her transgression, since he was unable to bring himself to perform the task, and then, feeling pity for what he did earlier, he made the raven sacred and gave them the task of announcing important deaths. Ovid, though, describes a version in which Apollo did the deed himself. Quote, when Apollo heard this charge against Coronis, the laurel wreath slipped from his head, his expression changed, and the color drained from his cheeks. As his heart burned with swollen rage, he took up his usual weapons and bent his bow to string it. With his unerring arrow, he pierced the breast that he had so often embraced. She gave a groan as she was stuck, and when she drew the shaft from her body, red blood welled up over her white limbs. She spoke, You could have exacted this punishment, and I have paid with my life, after I had borne your child. As it is, two of us die in one. 
With these words, her life drained away with her blood, and the chill of death crept over her lifeless corpse. End quote. Apollo, the story goes, was sorry for what he had done and snatched the child from her body before it was burned on the funeral pyre. Phlegius was irate after the death of his daughter, and so he burned the temple of Apollo at Delphi. Apollo, unsurprisingly, killed him for what he did. In Virgil's Aeneid, Phlegius is shown tormented in Tartarus in the underworld, joining his son Ixion for committing acts that thoroughly appalled the gods. The child, Asclepius, would be raised by the centaur Chiron, who taught him the art of medicine. We will discuss Chiron more very shortly. Asclepius became so gifted in medicine, though, that all of the Greeks agreed that he was a mortal healer who had perished, struck by Zeus's lightning bolt, for presuming to raise the dead. We recounted this myth in episode 78. Yet by the classical period, Asclepius was just as unequivocally considered to be a god, though subordinate to his father Apollo, from whom his healing power was derived. As we also discussed in episode 78, Paeons were the hymns that were sung to Apollo when someone was asking for healing for themselves or the community. The word derives from the Mycenaean healing god, Paeon, who was attested in Linear B tablet from Knossos as Pejawone, seeming to connect the two gods, since the name Apollo itself doesn't actually appear on Linear B tablets. Apollo's healing function thus can be considered a legacy from the Mycenaean Paeon, and in time he gradually took over his role. In fact, in Homer, Paeon was still considered to be the physician of the gods. In Book 5 of the Iliad, for example, when Ares is wounded by Diomedes, Paeon applies pharmaca, or medicine, that produces an instant relief. Hesiod identifies Paeon as an individual deity when he says, quote, Unless Phoebus Apollo should save him from death, or Paeon himself, who knows the remedies for all things, end quote. Although Paeon did not have a separate cult in Greek religion, in time his name became synonymous as an epithet of Apollo. In his capacity as a god capable of bringing and curing disease, and therefore he was propitiated as a god of healing. Later, Paeon also becomes an epithet of Asclepius, the healer god. Other common epithets of Apollo as a healer are Akestar, which literally means the healer, Epicorius, or the helper, Iatros, the physician, and oleos, or of the healed wound. As we mentioned, a paeon was a song in honor of Apollo, and Greek medicine frequently made use of paeons in the form of healing charms that were sung over the sick person. The physicians were called iatromantis, or seer doctors, and according to some scholars, these figures belonged to a wider Greek and Asian shamanic tradition with origins in Central Asia. They used an ecstatic, prophetic art, similar to what Apollo was said to use with his oracles. This ecstatic, meditative practice was called enchoimesis, or incubation. It was more than just a medical technique, though, as incubation reportedly allowed a human being to experience a fourth state of consciousness different from sleeping, dreaming, or ordinary waking, similar to Indian yogic traditions. We discussed prophecy in Apollo's oracles last episode, as well as how this type of incubation-like stage was used at Asclepius' sanctuaries in episode 78. Apollo's power to control plagues, both in sending and taking away, and his status as an authority on purification, more on both of those shortly, also contributed to the ancient Greek reverence for his healing abilities. 
Yet in the classical period, Apollo ceded the role of healer to his son Asclepius, whose cult at Epidaurus rapidly grew in popularity in the 5th and 4th centuries BC. Very little is known of Asclepius beforehand, though. As we discussed in episode 78, during the 5th century BC, Asclepiad was already a familiar synonym for a physician, and Asclepius was considered the father, in a metaphorical sense, of all members of the profession, some of whom probably honored him in private with prayers and offerings. In fact, along with Apollo and Hygieia, he is one of the witnessing gods in the famous Hippocratic Oath, but he was renowned as a culture hero long before the rise of his Pan-Hellenic cult. Homer in the Iliad speaks of Asclepius as the blameless physician, who is father to the heroes Machaon and Podolarios, and connects the family with Trica in Thessaly, and Ithome and Oikalia, both in Mycenae, where there were early traditions about Asclepius' birth. Although Asclepius' earliest sanctuary may well have been in Trica, as we mentioned, it was the small Peloponnesian city of Epidaros that developed a cult of Pan-Hellenic importance, and from which the worship spread rapidly throughout the Greek world in the 5th and 4th centuries BC. At Epidaurus, the early cult of Apollo Miletus on Mount Kinortion, or the Dog's Climb, over time expanded to the plain as the city grew. This early sanctuary is noted for its Bronze Age remains, which include an altar, auxiliary buildings, and a terrace where ritual meals were consumed. Though continuity with the Bronze Age cannot be demonstrated, medical instruments contained in the altar here show that the subsequent geometric cult was addressed to Apollo, at least in part, as a healer. Scholars disagree on whether Maliatis was initially the name of a separate deity, but inscriptions show that the cult was fairly widespread in the Peloponnese during the Archaic period. One of the earliest installations in the lower sanctuary at Epidaurus was an altar to Apollo, beneath which was found a bronze offering bowl dedicated to Asclepius in the early 5th century BC. A nearby stoa, or courtyard, called Building E, contained an ash altar and terminated in a small room supplied with a water channel and a stone couch or table, where the god shared food with his worshippers. A sacred well, which was probably used for ritual baths, became the nucleus of the later abaton, the area where incubation took place. These elements form the core of the early classical sanctuary, shared by Apollo and Asclepius, before Apollo's sanctuary on the plain of Epidaurus was eventually taken over by Asclepius. Pilgrims to the shrine, hoping to be healed, still sacrificed first to Apollo, though, before entering, and the votive inscriptions that they set up to describe their miraculous cures are addressed to both Apollo and Asclepius as saviors. In the 4th century BC, a paeon composed by Asilus was inscribed on a block near Asclepius' temple. It describes how a sacred procession of Epidaurus' best men carried garlands of laurel to Apollo's temple and shoots of olive to Asclepius. Neither Asclepius' precinct nor Apollo's shrine on Mount Kinortion possessed a monumental temple until the 4th century BC, though. As we mentioned, beginning in the 5th century BC, Asclepius' popularity increased rapidly, and his worship began to be exported, often by grateful pilgrims who had been healed by the god and wished to establish branch cults in their hometowns. Important cults at Corinth and Athens were among the earliest offshoots. 
Still, though, it was not until the 4th century BC that the great prosperity of the sanctuary resulted in major architectural elaboration, which has been documented in a collection of inscriptions detailing the financial and legal arrangements. The new structures, beginning as early as 380 BC, included a Doric temple of Asclepius, a large abaton that incorporated the sacred well, and a mysterious circular building called the Thymele, which concealed below its floor level a maze-like arrangement of concentric rings around a central chamber. The stadium and famous theater came later, though only slightly, as Asclepia, with musical and athletic competitions, were recorded to be taking place there in Plato's dialogue, Ion. Through hymns, dedications, and cultic iconography, we know that Asclepius was worshipped in conjunction with a family group who personify aspects of healing. The name of his consort, Epione, refers to the physician's gentle touch. An ancient speculation found the same root in Asclepius's name, though its true etymology is unknown. In addition to his two physician sons, the aforementioned Homeric heroes Malchaon and Podalarios, he had a daughter named Hygieia, or Health, and a trio of nymph-like attendants, Akesos, or Relief, Iasso, or Healing, and Panachia, or Universal Cure. Asclepios possessed certain Chthonian characteristics, the most important of which were his epiphany as a snake in the ritual of encomesis, or incubation, which is generally associated with netherworld powers. The function of the famous Thymele is unknown, but its lower chamber suggests a Chthonian component in the Epidarian cult. In spite of these features, Asclepius lacked the kindly yet wrathful dual personality that is typical of Chthonian gods. Although he sometimes refused to heal evildoers, he was generally a beneficent, gentle god, extending his gifts even to unbelievers. The popular and effective element in Asclepius's worship can be seen through the various famous Iamata of Apollo and Asclepius, which are inscribed testimonies at Epidaurus of cures left by visitors from all over the Aegean. These were set up in the sanctuary in the second half of the 4th century BC, but they represent a compilation of many older dedications, including a number of painted panaches, which are now lost. Perhaps one of the oldest was dedicated by Cleo, whose inscription reads, quote, The size of the tablet is not to be wondered at, but the greatness of the divinity, in that Cleo carried a burden in her womb for five years, until she lay down within and he made her healthy, end quote. Apparently, Cleo was with child for five years until Asclepius induced the child to be born. Ouch. Another account tells of a local boy who suffered from kidney stones. In his dream, the god asked, What will you give me if I heal you? The boy offered his collection of knuckle bones, the ancient equivalent of dice, and Asclepius laughingly agreed to the bargain. Other tales tell of cures for parasites, blindness, and lameness, among others. We discuss other imata and the procedure of healing in more detail in episode 78. Around 420 BC, Athens became home to two sanctuaries of Asclepius, one in the Piraeus at Zia and one in the city, on the southern slope of the Acropolis. Relations between Athens and Epidaurus had just been restored through the Peace of Nicias in 421 BC, and Athens was still recovering from the Great Plague that ravaged the city from 430 to 426 BC. Although a number of older healing cults existed, including those of Apollo Paeon, 
Athena Hygieia, and various physician heroes, the time was ripe for a newer, more potent healing figure. A monument found in the city Esculapion proclaims that one Telemachus introduced the god and financed the cult in its earliest years. This large inscribed stele, toppled by a double-sided relief illustrating Asclepius' arrival, says that he came from Zia in 420 BC at the time of the Eleusinian Mysteries and was temporarily lodged in the Eleusinion. Damaged lines suggest that Telemachus installed a sacred snake, summoned from Epidaurus, in the new sanctuary. Other accounts of Asclepius' travels similarly describe how he was conveyed in serpent form to Sicyon, Epidaurus, Lemera, and Rome. There is continuing controversy over which areas of the excavated Asclepion, to the west of the Theater of Dionysus, were included in Telemachus' original installation. One of the oldest structures from around 420 BC is a four-room dining area. Another is the so-called Bothros, a stone-lined circular pit covered by a four-column canopy, which most likely served as a place to deposit offerings. A grotto spring in the cliff must have been a part of the earliest shrine, since abundant water for ritual and therapeutic bathing was a necessity in all Asclepia. Aristophanes' comic account in his play Plutos of the healing of the personified god of wealth Plutos set in the Piraeus Asclepion is the earliest description of the incubation ritual. The blind Plutos, or wealth, is led into the sea to bathe, and inexpensive cakes are burned on the altar. Then he is placed on the temple floor along with the other alien visitors, and the lamps are extinguished for the night. The god enters, attending to each patient in turn. Assisted by his daughter, Panachea, he covers Plutus's head with a cloth and calls two huge serpents from the temple to lick his eyes, speedily effecting the cure. This testimony shows that Asclepius did not demand expensive sacrifices from those he treated. The standard preliminary offering consisted of cakes, while thank offerings, after receiving a cure, might be a bit more generous, as sacrificial sheep, pigs, and cattle are shown in the abundant votive reliefs from the Asclepia at Athens and Piraeus. Although unusual in other cults, the rooster was a common gift to Asclepius, as we learn from Socrates' last words in Plato's Phaedrus, and the many terracotta roosters found in the sanctuaries at Athens and Corinth. Another widespread custom was the dedication of metal or clay body parts as thank offerings. The rise of Asclepius is often seen to be a harbinger of an important shift in Greek religion, a movement away from state and communal worship towards a greater focus on the needs of the individual and the gods who address those needs, something which increases in the Hellenistic period. There is much truth to this, but the available evidence suggests that Asclepius concerned himself with families as much as individuals. More votive reliefs to Asclepius are extant than for any other single deity, and these usually show a family making offerings to the god and Hygieia, or other associates. They vary greatly in the number, age, and sex of the family members depicted, showing that the reliefs were custom-made rather than stock items. One of the more famous sites dedicated to Apollo as a healing god is found at Basai, a very remote site at the top of a mountain in Arcadia, not far from Epidaurus. Here, Apollo and his sister Artemis were provided with twin temples in the 7th century BC. 
An archaic temple of Aphrodite stood on the summit of Mount Cotillion in the same precinct. Pan was worshipped here too, and like the more famous Arcadian peak of Lycaon, all of Mount Cotillion seems to have been considered sacred space. Many Arcadians who served as professional mercenaries made offerings of miniature armor and weapons in the form of helmets, shields, corselets, and spearheads for Apollo, who had the dual titles of Bassetus, or of Basai, and Epicorios, or the Helper. In the latter part of the 5th century BC, the inhabitants of Basai promised to build a magnificent new temple if Apollo averted a plague that was inflicting the people, which he did. This was the famous plague during the Peloponnesian War. Once the money for it was gathered by the inhabitants of Basai, its construction was overseen by Actinos, the architect of the Parthenon. It combined Doric and Ionic elements, as well as Corinthian, as the temple employed the earliest known use of a Corinthian capital atop a single column in the middle interior of the temple. In addition, the roof left a central space open to admit light and air. We discuss the many peculiarities of this temple in great detail in episode 58. We mentioned earlier that the centaur Chiron raised Asclepius. Like satyrs, centaurs were notorious for being wild, lusty, overly indulgent drinkers and carousers, violent when intoxicated, and generally uncultured delinquents. Chiron, though, was intelligent, civilized, and kind. In fact, Chiron was held to be the wisest and justest of all the centaurs. His physical appearance also often differs somewhat from other centaurs. In traditional Greek representations of Chiron, his front legs are human, rather than equine, meaning he was a man from head to toe, but with the center and hind parts of a horse attached to his buttocks. This form was used to differentiate Chiron from more traditional centaurs in art, who were represented as men only from the head to the waist, and the entire lower body of a horse, and therefore more animal-like. This would change with the Romans, though. Chiron is also often depicted wearing clothes, demonstrating he is more civilized. This all clearly sets Chiron apart from the other centaurs, making him easily identifiable. This difference may also have highlighted Chiron's unique status and lineage, since he was not related directly to the other centaurs, due to his parentage. We discussed how centaurs came into being in episode 46, with Ixion, Nephili, Centauros, and the Magnesian mares. Chiron, by contrast, was said to be sired by the titan Kronos when he had taken the form of a stallion and impregnated the nymph Philyra, a daughter of Oceanus and Tethys. According to Hyginus, when she gave birth to her son on Mount Pelion, she was so disgusted by his half-human, half-equine shape that she abandoned him at birth and implored the gods to transform her into anything other than anthropomorphic, as she could not bear the shame of having had such a monstrous child and so the gods changed her into a linden tree. Ancient sources attributed Chiron's uniquely peaceful character and intelligence to Apollo and Artemis, teaching him in his younger days. And so his personal skill set tend to match those of Apollo and Artemis in that he was skilled in music, archery, hunting, gymnastics, and the art of prophecy. Chiron was especially known for his knowledge and skill with medicine, and thus was credited with the discovery of botany and pharmacy, or the sciences of herbs and medicine. Chiron lived predominantly on Mount Pelion in Thessaly, where he married the nymph Chericlo, who bore him three daughters and a son. One of those daughters, Endace, became the wife of Aeacus, of Agina, 
who was the mother of the heroes Telamon and Peleus, and the grandmother of Ajax and Achilles. A great healer, astrologer, and respected oracle, Chiron was notable for his youth-nurturing nature, and thus he was highly revered as a teacher and tutor, as many prominent young men of Greece came to his home to be trained. Statius, a 1st century AD Roman author, in his Achillade, which is an epic poem of the life of Achilles, creates an image of Chiron that is not only a loving father figure, but a strict and wise teacher, disassociated with the bestial aspects of centaurs. Among his pupils were many of the culture heroes of Greek myth, including the aforementioned Aristeus, Asclepius, Telamon, Peleus, Achilles, and Ajax, as well as Actaeon, Canaeus, Perseus, Jason, Heracles, and Theseus. Chiron is also connected with many of the Argonauts, whom he received kindly when they came to his residence on their voyage, as many of these heroes were his friends and pupils. Like the other centaurs, Chiron was later expelled by the Lapiths from his home, but sacrifices were offered to him there by the Magnesians until a very late period. And the family of the Chironidae in that neighborhood, who were distinguished for their knowledge of medicine, were regarded as his descendants. Some sources speculate that Chiron was originally a Thessalian god, later subsumed into the Greek pantheon as a centaur. Chiron's nobility is further reflected in the story of his death. As the son of Kronos, he was immortal, so it was left to Heracles to arrange a bargain with Zeus to exchange Chiron's immortality for the life of Prometheus, who had been chained to a rock and left to die for his transgressions, which we discussed in episode 2. Chiron was pierced with an arrow belonging to Heracles that had been treated with the blood of the Hydra, or in other versions, poison that Chiron had given to the hero when he had been under the centaur's tutelage. According to a scolion on Theocritus, this had taken place during the visit of Heracles to the cave of Phloos on Mount Pelion in Thessaly during his fourth labor, the Aramanthian boar. Pholus, like Chiron, was a civilized centaur, and indeed, in art, he sometimes shared the human centaur form in which Chiron was usually depicted. To further account for the unusually civilized behavior of Pholus, the mythographer Apollodorus wrote that his parents were Selenus and one of the Melii thus differentiating him genealogically from the other centaurs, as Chiron was known to be. Anyways, while they were having dinner, Heracles asked for some wine to accompany his meal. Well, it just so happened that Pholus had been given a vessel of sacred wine by Dionysus some time earlier to be kept in trust by the centaur until the right time for its opening. But at Heracles' prompting, Pholus begrudgingly produced the vessel of sacred wine. Heracles then grabbed it from him and forced it open, at which point the fragrant vapors of the sacred wine wafted out of Pholus' home in a cave and intoxicated a group of wild centaurs, led by Nessus, that had gathered outside. They were driven characteristically mad and charged into the cave, attacking Heracles with stones and fir trees. Heracles was forced to shoot many arrows, poisoned with the blood of the hydra, to keep them at bay and during the assault, Chiron was hit in the thigh by one of the poisoned arrows. After the centaurs finally gave up and had fled, Pholus emerged from the cave to observe the destruction. According to Apollodorus, since he was of a philosophical frame of mind, Pholus pulled one of the arrows from the body of a dead centaur and wondered how such a little thing as an arrow could have caused so much death and destruction. Diodorus, though, says that the arrow was pulled while Pholus was preparing the corpses for burial 
Regardless, in that instant, Folus let slip the arrow from his hand, and it dropped and hit him in the hoof, and the poison killed him instantly. This, though, is open to controversy, because Folus shared the civilized centaur form with Chiron in some art images, and so he too should have been an immortal creature. Hygienus reports a version of the story where it is not Folus's foot onto which the poisonous arrow accidentally falls, but Chiron's instead. Ironically, Chiron, the master of the healing arts, could not heal himself and willingly gave up his immortality to be free from the agony of the poison. For this reason, his half-brother Zeus took pity of him and thus placed him among the stars in the sky to be honored. The Greeks identified him as the constellation Centauros. In Ovid's poem Fasti, the child Achilles was present in Chiron's home when Heracles visited. While Chiron is examining Heracles' weapons, one of the arrows dipped in Larnian hydra venom falls into Chiron's left foot and poisons him. Chiron then tries to use herbs to heal himself, but to no avail. After nine days with a weeping Achilles looking on, Chiron passes into the stars. Because Zeus had made a promise to him that as long as he was needed as a trainer of demigods, he would exist in this world. And so he lives on today as a constellation and an inspiration. And now, let us take a short break for a word from our sponsors. The History of Ancient Greece is sponsored by the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is brought to you by Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos right from your phone. But while other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees. So with Robinhood, you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits, because they strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. And my favorite part about Robinhood is the design of the app and its ease of use. Thanks to its simple and intuitive, clear design, its data is presented in an easy-to-digest, non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers like myself to invest for the first time with true confidence. And the best part, Robinhood is giving my listeners a free stock, like Apple, Ford, or Sprint, to help build up your portfolio. Sign up at grease.robinhood.com. That's G-R-E-E-C-E dot R-O-B-I-N-H-O-O-D dot com. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. As we alluded to somewhat in episode 81, There were many love affairs ascribed to Apollo that end very badly, because Apollo is not very good at wooing mortals, but these are a late development in Greco-Roman mythography. Their vivid anecdotal qualities have made some of them favorites of painters since the Renaissance, the result being that they stand out more prominently in the modern imagination. Some of his most famous myths, and Renaissance statues, involve his failed courtship of nymphs, who are then transformed into some inanimate object for rejecting him such as Daphne and Castalia, two nymphs who we talked about in relation to Delphi. We won't discuss all of them here, but only some of the more interesting stories. For example, he attempted to woo Marpessa, the daughter of the river Euenus, but she was being wooed at the same time by a mortal named Idas. When a jealous Apollo was just about to kill Idas, Zeus interfered and asked Marpessus which one she would prefer. After mulling it over, she ultimately chose Idas because he could grow old with her and not abandon her when she gets older, like the perpetually young Apollo presumably would do. And so like with Coronis, for the second time a mortal woman had rejected the god Apollo for the love of a mortal man. Apollo, for his credit, was not undeterred by his many rejections and continued to search for another love interest. At one point, he came across the nymph Sinope, 
a daughter of the river Asopis, and started flirting with her. Like Daphne and Castalia, she wasn't interested either, so Apollo seized her and carried her off to a place on the Black Sea coast, where a Greek colony would later be established that took her name. If you recall, Apollo did the same with Cyrene, a union that bore him Aristeus. His seizure of Sinope wasn't quite as fruitful, though. Apollo had promised her that if she would love him, he'd give her anything that she wished, to which Sinope agreed. And so after getting Apollo to swear by the river Styx to this agreement, Sinope proclaimed that her desire was to remain a virgin forever. Apollo, having been tricked again, reluctantly ceded to her wishes and then moved on to the next object of his affection. When Apollo pursued a nymph named Ancampha, she rebuffed his advances too, and even scratched his face while trying to get away from him. As a result, the ever-spiteful Apollo transformed her into the Ancanthus, a plant with spiky and spiny leaves. Even when Apollo did find someone to love him, these typically didn't end well either. For example, Leucothea was a daughter of Orchimos and the sister of Clytia. She fell in love with Apollo Helios in his role as a sun god. More on that shortly. Anyways, one night Apollo had disguised himself as Leucothea's mother in order to gain entrance to her chambers. Clytia, who was jealous of her sister because she wanted Apollo Helios for herself, told the truth to their father Orchimos, betraying her sister's trust and confidence in her. Enraged, Orchimos ordered Leucothea to be buried alive. A saddened Apollo thus refused to forgive Clytia for betraying his beloved, and a spurned Clytia, who was in love with Apollo, wilted and slowly died from her grief. Apollo then changed turn to a type of incense plant, either heliotrope or sunflower, which follows the sun around every day. So apparently Apollo had the love of two sisters and couldn't even manage to get that to work out. Occasionally, in myth, Apollo showed an interest in young boys. This may seem odd to modern sensibilities, but we should keep in mind that to the ancient Greeks, the love between a man and a young boy, whom he trains in the ways of warfare and manly responsibilities, was often viewed as more intense and pure than the love between a man and a woman, as we discussed in episode 71. In particular, Apollo fell in love with a young boy named Siparissus, a descendant of Heracles who had a favorite stag that followed him everywhere. One day they were out hunting, and Siparissus shot an animal in the bushes, not knowing it was his pet, and so he had accidentally killed it. When he started to cry, Apollo said that he would give him anything just to cheer him up. But again, this didn't turn out quite like Apollo had hoped either, as Siparissus asked him if he could cry forever. So Apollo, reluctantly, granted him his request, and when he dried up, Apollo then turned him into a cypress tree named after him, and which was said to be a sad tree because the sap forms droplets like tears on the trunk. Similarly, Hyokinthos was a young Spartan prince loved by both Apollo and Zephyr, the west wind. When Apollo was practicing throwing the discus with the boy, Zephyr became jealous and caused a strong wind to blow Apollo's discus off course, hitting Hyokinthos in the head and killing him instantly. According to Ovid, Apollo was filled with intense grief, and from Hyokinthos' blood, he created a flower and named it after the young boy in his memory, the hyacinth. Apollo's tears, though, stain the flower, and so inside can be seen the letters ii, which in Greek mean alas, so it is a symbol of mourning. It has been suggested that Hyokinthos was a pre-Hellenic divinity, supplanted by the Dorian god Apollo through the accident of his death, to whom he remains associated in the epithet of Apollon Hyokinthios. And so the myth serves to link him to local cults and to identify him with Apollo. The name of Hyakinthos is certainly of pre-Hellenic origin, as indicated by the suffix inthos, 
which is also found in the Luwian language of Anatolia. Hyakinthos is sometimes even thought to be Minoan in origin. The month and festival named after Hyakinthos are common in Dorian cities, but most of our evidence comes from the cults of Amakli outside of Sparta, where he was worshipped as a divine hero beloved by Apollo. A temenos, or sanctuary, grew up around what was alleged to be his burial mound, which was located at the feet of Apollo's cult statue, a colossal bronze figure that stood in the open air. It drew a Near Eastern iconography, showing Apollo as a helmeted warrior with a bow in one hand and a spear in the other. This image, created in the late 7th or early 6th centuries BC, was unusual for several reasons. It did not possess a fully human shape, but took the form of a huge bronze pillar with sculpted face, feet, and hands. Colossal statues were celebrated in the classical period, but most archaic cult images were considerably smaller than life-size. The size of the Apollo, estimated by Pausanias at 15 meters, explains why there was no temple to house it, for buildings of such height were beyond the technology of the day. Instead of a temple, the image was displayed in an elaborately decorated enclosure known as the throne, which was added about a century after the statue was erected. The festival itself combined the worship of Apollo Amakleos and Hyakinthos. The Hyakinthia was celebrated at Sparta every year in the Spartan month of Hyakinthias in early summer, which corresponded with the Attic month of Hecatombion, or late June and early July. The festival lasted three days, and the details have been passed down to us through the descriptions in Athenaeus and Didymus. The first day was given over to mourning and solemnity for the death of the hero Hyakinthos. The blood of sacrificial animals were poured onto Hyakinthos's tomb through a bronze door in the side of the statue base, which also functioned as an altar. Other sacrifices were offered to the dead, banquets were stark and without pomp or decoration, and the sacrificial breads were very plain. By contrast, the second day was one of joyous celebration for his rebirth. The whole city joined the procession from Sparta to Amakli, where both young boys and girls played the cathara and the aulis, and sang the glory of Apollo. Others participated in horse races, and numerous choirs competed, singing songs and dancing. The high point was the singing of the paean, the special hymn for Apollo. Amakli was also the location of parades of carts decorated by the girls and women of Sparta. Numerous sacrifices were offered, exclusively goats, with the occasion of the copus, which were banquets where the citizens invited all of their friends and relatives. The Helots also had the right to participate in these celebrations, as did any foreigners. As Athenaeus writes, quote, They treat not only their countrymen, but any foreigners who happen by. End quote. The copus took place under special tents known as skina, a characteristic trait of ancient country festivals. The third day is not described in detail, but it is possible that it was more solemn, or that mysteries were held. It is also known that for this holiday, the Spartan women wove a chiton, or tunic, which is then offered to the god, a tradition similar to the peplos offered to Athena at Athens upon the occasion of the Panathenaic festival. However, due to the statue's large size, we aren't sure if it was one large enough for the god to actually wear, or if it was symbolically given to him. The Hyakinthia was considered such a major Spartan holiday that Xenophon in his Hellenica reports that the Spartans interrupted their campaigns in order to be able to return to Laconia so as to participate. Pausanias writes that they even negotiated a truce especially for this purpose. According to Thucydides, upon the peace of Nicias, in order to prove their goodwill towards Sparta, Athens even promised to assist at the celebrations. 
Apollo Amicleus has drawn attention from scholars because his name appears on a bilingual inscription from Idalion in Cyprus, where he was equated with Reshet Mukal, a deity associated with plague in ancient Canaanite religion. The epithet Mukal, transformed to Imyklos, was carried at an early date to Gorton in Crete, and from there to Sparta, supplying a name for both the cult and the town. It illustrates how Cyprus and Crete were conduits for cultural influences from the Near East during the formative period of Greek religion. Excavations at Amaklai have revealed evidence for nearly continuous activity from the Late Bronze Age, another unusual feature of the site. After serving as a sub-Mycenaean-era cultic site, the sanctuary began to receive dedications again in the 9th century BC, perhaps the date of Apollo's introduction. Another case of a pre-Hellenic deity whose cult was absorbed by Apollo is the ancient ram-headed god Carnos. For the Dorian Greeks of the Peloponnese and their overseas cousins, the late summer festival of Apollo Carneos, or of the ram, was the most important of the year. It took place every year from the 7th to the 15th of the month of Carneus, or August, which is equivalent to the Athenian month of Metagitneon. The festivals involved dances by the young men and women of the community. And at Sparta, the Carnea grew into a major musical competition. A group of five unmarried men, known as the Carniatii, were chosen by lot from each tribe for a term of four years to organize and bear the expenses of the festival and to superintend the proceedings. The officiating priest was called Architess, or leader. A band of young men also entered a foot race as Staphylodromoi, or grape runners, because they carried vine branches full of grapes while pursuing a runner, possibly the priest himself who was decked with garlands like a sacrificial victim. If they caught him, it meant good luck for the city in the coming year. If not, it meant the reverse. The general meaning of the agrarian ceremony probably intended to explain the sacrifice of an animal, perhaps a later substitute for a human being, as the representative of the god. In the second part of the festival, at Sparta, the warriors set up nine skadia, or tents, in the countryside that represented the fratries, or obai. They were pitched to symbolize shepherds' huts or military encampments, and the men banqueted in honor of the god as if on campaign, and at Cyrene they conducted a dance in armor. According to Athenaeus, the Carnea was an imitation of life in camp, and everything was done in accordance with the command of a herald. In regards to the sacrifice, which no doubt formed part of the ceremony, all that is known is that a ram was sacrificed at Thurai. The celebrants took seriously the prohibition on combat during the Carnea, which was the reason that the Spartans gave for missing the Battle of Marathon and sent only a token force to Thermopylae, as we discussed in episodes 36 and 37. In spite of the injunction against warfare during the festival, it still celebrated the warlike nature of the Dorians and their legendary conquest of the Peloponnese, as well as historical colonization efforts. The myth surrounding the Spartan festival attributes its origins to the pre-Greek inhabitants. According to ancient tradition, Carnos was a seer from Acarnania and was a lover of Apollo. Carnos accompanied the Heraclidae and was killed with a spear for giving obscure prophecies and being suspected of espionage during their return to the Peloponnese. By way of punishment, Apollo visited the army with a pestilence, which only ceased after the institution of the cult of Apollo Carneos and the festival was meant to commemorate the death of Carnos. Regardless of myth, scholars have suggested that sometime in the geometric period, the cult of Apollo supplanted a pastoral, ram-headed god Carnos, whether of Dorian or indigenous origin, who presided over the seasonal movements of the flocks and led them to new pastures.
The journey of the flocks was eventually identified with a mythic Dorian migration, and the later part of the festival took on a more military character in keeping with the theme of conquest, alongside the agrarian part of the festival at the beginning. Statues of Apollo are abundant in Greco-Roman and Renaissance art. The earliest Greek word for a statue is agama, or delight, and the sculptures tried to create forms which would inspire such a guiding vision. Greek art puts into Apollo the highest degree of power and beauty that can be imagined. The sculptors derived this from observations on human beings, but they also embodied in concrete form issues beyond the reach of ordinary thought. The naked bodies of the statues are associated with a cult of the body that was essentially a religious activity. The muscular frames and limbs, combined with slim waists, indicate the Greek desire for health and the physical capacity which was necessary in the hard Greek environment. The statues of Apollo embody balance and inspire awe before the beauty of the world. The evolution of the Greek sculpture can be observed in his depictions from the almost static formal kurus type in the early archaic period to the representation of motion in a relative harmonious whole in the classical period. We discussed this in great detail in episodes 17 and 56. By the late archaic and classical periods, Apollo is represented in art as the ideal youth. In Doric Greek, Apollo is called Apellon, and he is known as the Megistus Kouros, or the Great Youth. This was because Apollo was the god of perpetual youth, and the Dorian Greeks saw him as the god that looked over rites of passage, like his sister, because he was stuck as a young boy forever. Apollo thus tries to prepare boys for manhood, to become citizens, hunters, craftsmen, builders, and so forth, by training them to be like himself. Kuroi are statues of ideal young men with a very strong smile, their hands and fists, and a rigid stance, stepping forward into manhood. His cult teaches medicine for them to help their bodies on the battlefield, archery, rationality and wise ideals, and how to be strong and healthy. All young boys tried to reach the ideal standard set by Apollo, because when you were a Kuros, you could be admitted into society. And being admitted into society meant you could become a citizen soldier. Apollo Lycios, or of wolves, was commonly invoked against enemies, particularly in military contexts. One of his ancient cults was that at Argos, where he was the most important god next to Hera, and his temple held the sacred fire of the city. In both Argos and Athens, he presided over the mustering of hoplite warriors who would defend the city with the ferocity of the wolf. Athenian hoplites in the 5th century BC paid a tax for the upkeep of the sanctuary of Apollo Lycios in a gymnasium, which also served as their training ground, called the Lycaon, or Lyceum, where Aristotle would later found his famous philosophical school. In its earliest stages, though, the cult of Apollo Lycios probably had to do with the need to ward off marauding wolves from flocks. A non-Greek, eastern origin of Apollo has generally been assumed by scholars. The name of Apollo's mother, Leto, has Lydian origin, and she was worshipped on the coasts of Asia Minor. Specifically, she was the patron goddess of Lycia. As we discussed in episode 81, his oracular cults were probably introduced into Greece or Manitolia, where there existed some of the oldest oracular shrines. Omens, symbols, purifications, and exorcisms appear in old Assyro-Babylonian texts and these rituals were spread into the Hittite Empire. The 7th and 20th of each month, the days of the new and full moon, were held sacred to Apollo. However, while Greek festivals were usually celebrated at the full moon, all the feasts of Apollo were celebrated on the 7th day of the month, and the emphasis given to the 7th, the Sibutu, indicates a Babylonian origin. 
In Homer, Apollo is on the side of the Trojans, fighting against the Achaeans during the Trojan War. He is pictured as a terrible god, less trusted by the Greeks than the other gods. The god here seems to be related to Apollonius, a tutelary god of Walusa, or Troy in Asia Minor. In fact, in myth, the walls of Troy were built by Apollo. One of the most widely diffused types of Apollo's cult is perhaps the least familiar to readers of Greek poetry. The worship of Apollo as a guardian and the one who adverts evil. He was known as Apollo Agiaeus, or of the street, Thyraeus, of the door, Propylaeus, before the gate, and Prostaterios, the protector. All epithets as the protector god of public places and houses. Apollo Agiaeus was also expected to protect travelers on the street, as Aeschylus reveals in the Agamemnon, when he makes Cassandra bitterly reproach this god for leading her into danger. For this role, Apollo was often depicted in an iconic form, as a stone pillar on a stepped base. In Athens, the pillars stood in front of houses, where they were decorated with branches of laurel or myrtle, and received offerings of incense or oil. Belief in the protective powers of sacred stones was widespread throughout the Mediterranean, including the Levant, where the pillar of the Canaanite god of plague, Reshef, functioned in similar fashion during the Bronze Age. Sometimes the worship of Apollo focused on protection from very specific ills, as in the cult of Apollo Smintheus, or of mice, which was one of the first epithets seen for Apollo at the beginning of the Iliad indicating that as early as Homer's time near Troy and in the neighboring parts of Asia Minor settled by Aeolian Greeks, they seem to have worshipped a mouse god. Similarly, Apollo is worshipped as Parnopius or of locust. This all relates to the fact that Apollo can send or take away plagues because mice and locust were often connected with plagues. He drives the blight away from the crops, but only if he is properly worshipped, and he sends away disease from both humans and animals and keeps them safe from wild beasts. Similarly, a sacred law from Cyrene directs that if disease should come against the city, the inhabitants are to, quote, sacrifice in front of the gates before the shrine of aversion, a red he-goat to Apollo Apotropaeus, or the one who averts evil, end quote. In fact, it is in his function as Apotropaeus, or Alaxacacos, the one who defends from evil, that we mostly find Apollo being worshipped. And the sacrifices and votive offerings to him had as their aim the procurement of Apollo's protection from various types of evil. The Hittite and Hurrian god Aplu was also a god of plague, invoked during plague years. And so here we have an apotropaic situation where a god originally bringing the plague was invoked to end it. At the beginning of the Iliad, in the ninth year of the Trojan War, we are told a story of how the Greeks disrespected one of Apollo's priests, named Chryseis, by kidnapping his daughter, Chryseis, in one of their raids on a nearby town. Agamemnon was holding the priest's daughter as part of his booty, and he rejected the priest's ransom and entreaties, then rebuked him and sent him away harshly. He said, quote, Don't let me catch you around here again, or nothing will be able to save you. I'm going to take your daughter home with me, and she's going to do my housework, and share my bed with me, and grow old in my house back in Greece. End quote. The priest went away in sorrow and appealed to Apollo for help. Quote, if I have been a loyal priest to you, let the Greeks pay for this. End quote. Apollo heard his prayers, grabbed his bow and quiver full of arrows, and glided down from the heavens to a hilltop across from the Greek camp, where he shot his arrows into the camp. Homer says that at first the cattle died, and then the other animals fell, and finally the humans followed after nine days of constant barrage, as Apollo had caused a plague to ravage the Greek camp. Quote, 
Day and night, the funeral pyres were kept busy, burning the corpses of Greek soldiers. End quote. The Greeks needed to appease Apollo before he finally lifted it, since he's the only one who can send and take plagues away. It wasn't until the Greeks returned the girl to her father and sacrificed 100 oxen, the so-called hecatomb, to Apollo that the gods ceased raining the plague, symbolized by the arrows, onto the camp. Homer interprets Apollo as a Dinios Theos, or terrible god, who brings death and disease with his arrows, but who can also heal, possessing a magic art that separates him from the other Greek gods. Apollo thus is also an archer god, just like his sister Artemis. His epithet, Hekergos, means far shooter. Early dedications in Apollo's sanctuaries include bronzes of Near Eastern smiting gods, such as the Canaanite god Resheth, who shared Apollo's function as a sender of plague and whose anger could be channeled against his enemies. While Apollo's bow may be a borrowing from the Hittite archer god Ira, all these functions, including the function of the healer god Paeon, who seems to have Mycenaean origin, are fused in the cult of Apollo. In keeping with his Near Eastern associations, and like his sister Artemis, Apollo was a temple deity. While temples and images were not indispensable to his cults, they were characteristic of his worship. Many temples were dedicated to Apollo in Greece and the Greek colonies. They showed the spread of his cults and the evolution of Greek architecture. In particular, those at Thermon, Eretria, and Dreros are noted for the wealth of information that they provide about the origins of the Greek temple and the range of cultic practices in the 9th, 8th, and early 7th centuries BC during this fusion of Apollo's cult with Anatolian, pre-Hellenic, and Doric elements. Other sites of Apollo's temples dating to the 6th century BC onwards are Delphi, Delos, Lesbos, Corinth, Cyrene, Nocritus, Syracuse, Selenos, Chios, Abai, Didyma, Ambracia, Basai, Kleros, and Hamaxitus in the Troad. The tribes of Aetolia in northwest Greece worshipped Artemis and Apollo above all the other gods. They met at the royal sanctuary of Apollo Thermios in Thermon, another truly venerable cult site where excavators have uncovered what may be the earliest temple of Apollo on the Greek mainland. It did not appear, as we might expect, on the future site of a large and prosperous polis, though. Instead, Aetolia lacked a centralized government and was considered a cultural backwater during the classical period. Yet in the late Bronze Age, it had been part of the Mycenaean civilization, and it escaped the violent upheavals of the centuries after the Mycenaean collapse. A mysterious curvilinear building, called Megaron B, dating to the 10th century BC, served as a center for ritual feasts and perhaps as a temple. Along the earliest votive objects is a Syro-Hittite smiting god statuette of the 8th century BC. The 7th century BC peristyle temple, constructed atop Megaron B, had walls of mud brick, while its columns and entablature were wood. The roof was decorated with gorgon masks. The surviving terracotta metopes, rare examples of early Greek painting, show that the temple was Doric in style. They depict the myth of the nightingale and swallow, who were the transformed Procne and Philomela, as told by Ovid, and the triad of Apollo, Leto, and Artemis, who had her own temple here, as well as Morgorgons, whose traditional function as architectural ornaments was to repel enemies. According to the Homeric Hymn to Apollo, the god arrived to the plain of Eretria, seeking a location to establish his oracle. A sanctuary of Apollo Daphnephoros, the laurel bearer, 
has been discovered in Eritrea, where a very early curvilinear hecatompedon was constructed about 740 BC, meaning it was 100 feet in length. In a similar building were kept the bases of the laurel branches, which were used for the first building. Another temple, probably peripteral, was built in the 7th century BC, with an inner row of wooden columns over to geometric predecessor. The cultic function of an even older building, which may have been a chieftain's house, is disputed though. In addition to its early date, the Eretria temple is noted for the find of a bronze horse's blinker, inscribed in Aramaic to a 9th century BC Syrian ruler. This was part of an heirloom set of horse trappings, dedicated piecemeal by some ancient traveler, and it's the earliest example of a West Semitic script to appear in Greece so far. Even more amazing, a forehead piece from this set, with the same inscription, has been found in the Heraion on Samos. Other finds at the sanctuary, including gold ornaments, bronzes, faience amulets, scarabs, and amber beads, further illustrate the wide trading contacts of the geometric Eretrians and the prominence of Apollo in their city. In the 1930s, those digging a field in eastern Crete made a stunning discovery of the undisturbed remains of a very early temple of Apollo Delphinios that dates from the mid-8th century BC. The building was not peripteral, and it contains column bases of the Minoan type, which many consider to be the predecessors of the Doric columns. According to the legend, according to legend, Apollo appeared as a dolphin and carried Cretan priests to the port of Delphi. There was more on that last episode. So this connection is interesting. Along the back wall, the excavators found a stone box filled with bones and goat's horns, which reminded them of the aforementioned keraton, or horn altar at Delos. Upon this box-like altar stood three figures made of bronze sheets hammered over a wood core. The largest, just under a meter tall, is a nude figure of Apollo, while the two clothed female figures, about half the size of Apollo, must be Artemis and Leto, as Apollo's sister and mother are regularly worshipped with him. These late geometric figures, contemporary with the temple, are unique examples of early Greek cult images. The back wall also supported a bench that held pots, a lamp, and terracotta figurines. A bronze gorgon mask hung on the wall or was propped on the bench. The temple continued in use for centuries, safeguarding its heirloom contents before it was abruptly abandoned in the Hellenistic period. Epigraphic evidence shows that the city of Dreros had an important cult of Apollo, probably to be assigned to the sanctuary. Apollo's role as the god of healing was closely tied to other aspects of his character, including his interests in poetry and music. As we discussed, Homer illustrated Paeon, the healing god, in the song Paeon being both of apotropaic thanksgiving or triumph. Such songs were originally addressed to Apollo, and afterwards to other gods, such as those of Dionysus and Asclepius. About the 4th century BC, the paeon became merely a formula of adulation, and its object was either to implore protection against disease and misfortune, or to offer thanks after such protection had been rendered. It was in this way that Apollo had become recognized as the god of music. We talked about the myths involving his musical contests with Pan and Marseus in episode 45, which established his dominance in that realm. This was in large part thanks to his tremendous skill with the lyre. In fact, he was the only Olympian god to possess a musical instrument as an attribute, after he received the lyre as a gift from the baby Hermes for stealing his cattle, as we discussed in episode 67. 
In addition, Apollo regularly appears in poetry with the muses and other divine choruses. And so, as a patron of music and poetry, he was known as Musagetis, which literally means the leader of the muses. Although few of his cults focused specifically on Apollo's patronage of poets and musicians, hymns and music were essential to his worship. That is because music requires both reason and harmony. Poetry and music elevate the mind to a new way of thinking by using words, sounds, and combinations of both that stir up the imagination in ways that plain language cannot. For this reason, poetry, according to the ancient writers, depends on the inspiration of the gods, that being the muses in particular, and their leader Apollo, since the language itself is divine. Medicine is a secret of the gods, derived from their understanding of how nature is intertwined, of causes and effects, and of how the body functions in all its parts. All of these gifts from Apollo and all the functions that he is responsible for separate mankind from the animals and draw them closer to the gods. Yet even this is limited since humans often misinterpret his oracles, which seem obscure to those who receive them, because they can't quite understand the language of poetry, and they do harm with medicine instead of good. The Musai, or Muses, were first mentioned by Hesiod. According to his account, which was generally followed by other writers in antiquity, they were the nine daughters of Zeus and Nemosine, or Memory. They were considered the source of the knowledge embodied in the poetry, dance, and music that were relayed orally for centuries in these ancient cultures. In current English usage, muse can refer in general to a person who inspires an artist, musician, or writer. It was not until the Hellenistic period that a specific function was assigned to each, and even then there was some variation in both their names and their attributes. However, the standard nine goddesses and their attributions are considered to be Calliope, epic poetry, Cleo, history, Euterpe, flutes and lyric poetry, Thalia, comedy and pastoral poetry, Melpomene, tragedy, Terpsichore, dance, Erato, love poetry, Polyhymnia, sacred poetry, and Orania, astronomy. With one of the muses, none of the sources can agree which, Apollo sired Linus, who was said to live during the reign of Cadmus in Thebes. Like his father, he was a reputed musician and master of eloquent speech. Linus may have been the personification of a dirge or lamentation of the dead, called Threnoi, or Threnody, as there was a classical Greek song genre known as Linos, which was sometimes seen as a lament for his death. This association would account for him being the son of Apollo and a muse, and by which fact, Linus was also considered the inventor of melody and the rhythm of dirges and songs in general. Linus was also the tutor to a young Heracles who grew up around Thebes, but Heracles lost his temper and killed him, as we discussed in episode 47. With the muse Calliope, Apollo had Orpheus and Hymenaeus. Orpheus was a legendary musician, poet, and prophet in ancient Greek religion and myth, who we discussed in episode 81. Hymenios is one of the winged love gods, Therotes, who is a god of marriage ceremonies that inspires feasts and song. Related to the god's name, Hymenios is a genre of Greek lyric poetry sung during the procession of the bride to the groom's house in which the god is addressed, as we discussed in episode 74. Finally, with the muse Thalia, Apollo had the Corybantes, who were young warriors that worshipped the Phrygian goddess Sibylle, with drumming and dancing, which we discussed in episode 55. So as you can expect, all of the offspring that Apollo had with the muses in some form were involved with the arts. 
Apollo is sometimes identified with Helios, the titan god of the sun, though in Homeric literature they are clearly identified as different gods, and Apollo is shown to have no solar features. The earliest reference to Apollo as a sun god is found in Euripides' play Phaethon. In the Hellenistic period, especially during the 3rd century BC, as Apollo Helios, he became identified among Greeks with the sun, and his sister Artemis similarly became equated with Selene, the titan goddess of the moon. Apollo's epithet Phoebus, meaning shining or bright, was later also applied by Latin poets to Sol, the Roman equivalent of Helios, and it relates to the fact that Phoebus Apollo is both the sun god and the god of reason. And so he takes over the function of the older Hyperion, the titan of heavenly light, and his son Helios. There were also many who associated Apollo with Lycagus, or dawn, referring to the first light of the day, and thus worshipped him under the name Lycius. The meaning of the epithet Lycius later became associated with Apollo's mother Leto, who was the patron goddess of Lycia. Another epithet used was Phanius, literally giving or bringing light. Despite these identifications, Apollo was never actually described by the Greek poets as driving the chariot of the sun, although it was common practice among Latin poets. Therefore, Helios is still known as the sun god, who drives his chariot drawn by horses across the sky during the day in connection to the sun. According to Athenaeus, when he gets to the other side, at the hours of sunset, Helios climbs into a large golden tripod in order to hide himself, and thus hide the sun and then floats back over the tops of the ocean during the evening, passing from the Hesperides in the farthest west to start over again in the east the next day. Heracles, if you remember from episode 47, used this golden tripod while trying to retrieve the cattle of Geryon during one of his labors. Helios was sometimes characterized with the epithet panoptes, or the all-seeing, because as the sun god, he sees all things, and he is consulted in various myths when information is needed to be learned. His wife was Perse, an Oceanid nymph, and daughter of Oceanus and Tethys. Their children were Aetes, the ruler over Colchis and the father of Medea, Circe, the witch goddess, and Pasiphae, the wife of King Minos of Crete, and mother of Ariadne, Phaedra, and the Minotaur. The best-known myth involving Helios is that of his son Phaethon, with another Oceanid nymph named Clymene. The story is best told in Ovid's Metamorphoses, though as we mentioned earlier, Euripides wrote a play called Phaethon that is now lost. According to Ovid, Phaethon believed that the sun god Helios was his father, but after he was challenged by his playmates that this was a lie, he sought assurance from his mother that his father was really the sun god Helios. She gave him the requested assurance and told him to turn to his father for confirmation. And so he asked his father for some proof that would demonstrate his relationship with the sun. When the gods swore by the river Styx to grant him whatever he wanted, he insisted on being allowed to drive the sun chariot for a day to prove his divine lineage. Helios tried to talk him out of it by telling him that not even Zeus would dare to drive it, as the chariot was fiery hot and the horses breathed out flames. Phaethon was adamant though, so reluctantly, Helios placed him in charge of the chariot the next day, and not surprisingly, Phaethon was unable to control the tenacity and heat of the horses. And so, the terrified Phaethon dropped the reins and the horses veered from their course, resulting in the sun starting to scorch the earth and destroy vegetation. Ovid here describes how much of Africa was turned into a desert and says that this was how the Ethiopians, referring to Africans south of Egypt, had their skin turned black. 
Though, of course, we know with modern genetics that this was not true. Anyways, as Helios's chariot was hurling towards the Earth, it was in danger of being burned entirely up if the sun was allowed to hit its surface, and thus all mortals would have died. And so to prevent this disaster, Zeus was forced to interfere by striking down the chariot with a thunderbolt, which killed Phaethon in the process. Helios, stricken with grief at his son's death, at first refused to resume his work of driving his chariot. But at the appeal of the other gods, including Zeus, he returned to his task. In order for Helios to be able to drive his chariot each day, Eos, the goddess of the dawn, must first rise each morning from her home at the edge of Oceanus. Eos, whose Roman equivalent is Aurora, is the sister to both Helios and Selene, and is almost always described in poetry with having rhododactylos, or rosy fingers, as she opens up the gates of the heavens for Helios to rise. In Homer, her saffron-colored robe is embroidered or woven with flowers. Rosy-fingered and with golden arms, she is pictured on attic vases as a beautiful woman, crowned with a tiara or diadem, and with the large, white-feathered wings of a bird. She was the mother of several notable titan offspring, such as the four Animoi, or winds, and the morning star, Eosphoros, all of whom she bore to the titan Astraos, whose name means of the stars. Included among the four winds were Zephyrus, the west wind, and the bringer of light spring and early summer breezes, Notus, the south wind, and the bringer of the storms of late summer and autumn, Boreas, the north wind, and the bringer of cold winter, and Eurus, the east wind, and the only one of the four not associated with any of the seasons. According to Homer, the brightest of stars, Eosphoros, heralds the light of early rising dawn, and so Eos, preceded by the morning star, is seen as the genetrix of all of the stars and planets, and her tears are considered to have created the morning dew. Eos also fell in love several times with mortal men, and according to Pseudo-Apollodorus, it was the jealous Aphrodite who cursed her to be perpetually in love, and with an unsatiable sexual desire, because once, Eos consorted with Aphrodite's sweetheart Ares, the god of war. This caused her to abduct a number of handsome young men, most notably Cephalus, Tithonus, Orion, and Cletus. In one of her more famous myths, she asked for Tithonus to be made immortal, but forgot to ask for eternal youth, which resulted him living forever as a helpless old man. According to Hesiod, Memnon was the son of Eos and Tithonus. He fought among the Trojans in the Trojan War, but was slain. In literary contexts, Apollo represents harmony, order, and reason. And just as the sun shines into the darkness, Apollo shines into the darkness of thoughts. Being the god of light and the sun, he overwhelms the darkness, and through the light he is able to unveil the forthcoming events and reveal every secret to the people. At his most famous temple of Delphi, which we discussed last episode, there are sayings inscribed by the wise men of antiquity, such as know thyself, and nothing in excess, because wisdom is what he promoted. His oracles transferred by the Pythia gave both humans and the gods appropriate advice to do the right thing in their lives. The Greek cities, as well as other foreign countries, received the gods' oracles and made decisions according to the advice they were given. Apollo is both near to humans, but far away from them, at the same time. He is brought in close proximity to humans with his acts of purification and his servitude for mankind, when he is punished by Zeus, as well as to the fact that he helps the youth. Yet he distances himself from humans when he takes vacations every winter, 
According to tradition, Apollo stays with a mythic race, called the Hyperboreans, meaning very northerners, where the sun shone constantly and there was no darkness. Callimachus in his hymn to Apollo says that he rode on the back of a swan to the land of Hyperborea. They lived in a perpetual state of banqueting, music, and enjoyment. As we described in episode 55, Dionysus is the god of wine, who represents ecstasy and disorder, all characteristics that contrast with Apollo. However, the Greeks thought of these two qualities as complementary, not adversarial. The two gods are brothers, and it was Dionysus who took his place at Delphi during Apollo's absence each winter. When springtime came, Apollo returned bringing along light. Also, Apollo is widely unsuccessful with his attempts at his love affairs with humans. Other times in myths, Apollo appears as a bright, shining divinity, blinding them and not even saying anything. The humans were afraid when they see his divine power. This shows that although humans have a spark of the divine in them, the gods are still transcendent. Although the gods can relate to humans, they are truly far removed from them. And so that's Apollo. Probably from his eastern origin, he brought the art of omens and oracles to the Greek world, and the ritualism belonged to Apollo from the beginning. The Greeks created the legalism, the supervision of the orders of the gods, and the demand for moderation and harmony. Over time, Apollo became the god of shining youth, the protector of music, spiritual life, moderation, and perceptible order. The improvement of the old Anatolian god and his elevation to an intellectual sphere thus may be considered an achievement of the Greek people. On the next episode, we will continue our discussion of the intellectual sphere by turning once again to philosophy and science. The 6th century BC saw what could be called an intellectual revolution, primarily in Asia Minor. But not to be outdone by their cousins, much progress would also be seen in the Greek mainland and Magna Graecia in the 5th century BC. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 83, Philosophy and Science. Mm -hmm.